History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Let Your Motto Be Resistance, Henry Highland Garnett. To hear him in his prime was a rare privilege and a high delight. He had a voice of vast compass and of the sweetest tones. His presence his scrupulous neatness, his gentlemanly address, his deferential attitude, his fine enthusiasm always won his audience from the start. And then when he thoroughly warmed up to his subject and brought his hearers into full accord with himself, he carried them whithersoever he pleased. Now he convulsed them with laughter and filled them with delight, and then by a sudden turn his entire audience would be bathed in tears. Upon learning that these words describe a prominent African-American leader of the 19th century, it would be a fine guess to venture that they are about Frederick Douglass. But in fact, they come from Alexander Crummel's eulogy for his friend Henry Highland Garnett, whose fame and influence challenged Douglass's at the time, but who is much less well-remembered today. Garnett and Douglass clashed intellectually multiple times, sometimes in print but also in person. One can only imagine what it was like to witness their dueling eloquence in the flesh. As we'll see in an upcoming episode on Crummel, a significant portion of his life and work unfolded in Liberia, as he spent two decades there from 1853 to 1873. But by the time of his eulogy for Garnett in May of 1882, Crummel was living and working in Washington, D.C. Less than a year earlier, he had beseeched Garnett to turn down an appointment from President James Garfield to serve as minister and consul general to Liberia. It was the highest diplomatic post ever given to an African-American at the time, preceding Douglas's similar appointment to Haiti by eight years. Though it was a great honor, Crummel thought that Garnett's age and physical condition meant it was unwise for him to journey to Liberia. Sadly, his worries were well-founded. Garnett died within a few months of arriving there. Delivering the eulogy, Crummel could see in his mind's eye the very spot where Garnett was laid to rest, a cemetery called Palm Grove. There he lies, the deep Atlantic but a few steps beyond, its perpetual surges beating at his feet, chanting evermore the choral anthems of the ocean, the solemn requiem of the dead. The eulogy naturally provided an occasion to reflect on Garnett's life in America. Few were better placed than Crummel to do so, because he had known Garnett ever since the two of them were children. As Crummel puts it, Our distinguished friend was born in slavery in Kent County, Maryland, December 23, 1815, on the plantation of Colonel William Spencer. His grandfather was a Mandinka chieftain, brought from Africa after being captured in war. When Henry was just nine years old, his father, George, led 11 family members in a daring escape from slavery. The family's new surname, Garnett, may have been chosen as a variation on Garrett, the name of a Quaker who aided them during their journey to freedom. The family, or rather the part of it that included Henry, eventually ended up in New York City, where they lived next door to Crummel's family. Crummel reminisces, Here as little boys, Garnett and myself became schoolmates and lifelong friends. If it is already remarkable that two major African-American thinkers of the 19th century were next-door neighbors, then the concentration of greatness at the school they attended is simply astounding. They were students at the African Free School, 
first founded in 1787 by the New York Manumission Society. Other students at this same time were James McCune Smith, mentioned in the last episode as the first African-American to hold a medical degree, Ira Aldridge, the most famous Black actor of the 19th century and the first to perform in Shakespeare's plays, Patrick Reason, the pioneering engraver and lithographer, Patrick's younger brother, Charles Reason, who became a mathematician and linguist and the first African-American hired as a college professor, George Thomas Downing, a prominent abolitionist and business owner, and finally, Samuel Ringgold Ward, a second cousin of Garnett's, who gained fame as a journalist and abolitionist speaker. We'll discuss Ward in more detail in an upcoming episode on African-American emigration to Canada. Incidents during Garnett's youth foreshadowed the significance of the theme of violent resistance in his later thought. At the age of 14, having left school, Garnett was working as a cabin boy on a ship that sometimes made trips to Cuba. Upon returning from one such trip, Garnett found his home empty, his family having been scattered by the need to evade arriving slave catchers. His reaction to this news was to use what money he had to buy a knife, which he held as he walked along Broadway, waiting and apparently hoping for a confrontation. Friends had to convince him to get out of the city in order to stay safe. A second incident involves his continued pursuit of education. After further schooling in New York City once it was safe to come back, Garnett headed in 1835 to Canaan, New Hampshire, along with Crummel and another alumnus of the African Free School, Thomas Sidney. They went to attend the newly founded Noyes Academy, a racially integrated school founded by abolitionists. As it turned out, many white people in the surrounding area strongly objected to the presence of this experiment in racial integration. One summer day, around 95 oxen were used to pull the school from its foundations. When night came, the students in their quarters feared being the victims of mob violence. Garnett, despite suffering from a long-standing disease that in coming years would result in the amputation of his right leg, was the hero of the moment. As Crummel recounts, Under Garnett as our leader, the boys in the boarding house were molding bullets, expecting an attack on our dwelling. About 11 o'clock at night, the tramp of horses was heard approaching, and as one rapid rider passed the house and fired at it, Garnett quickly replied by a discharge from a double-barreled shotgun, which blazed away through the window. That musket shot by Garnett doubtless saved our lives. The cowardly ruffians dared not attack us. Having defended himself and the others, Garnett and his two friends left New Hampshire and went home to New York City, venturing out once again after only a few months when they learned of another integrated school in Utica, New York, called the Oneida Institute. Their studies there were, thankfully, more peaceful. As these incidents show, violent resistance was a reality in Garnett's life, not only a matter for philosophical debate. Another important factor in his life was religion. Before his time at Noyes Academy, he came under the influence of a black Presbyterian pastor named Theodore Wright, who baptized him and encouraged him to consider going into ministry. After his time at Oneida, Garnett settled in the city of Troy, New York, where he immediately became involved in a local church. He was eventually licensed to preach and then ordained as the pastor of Liberty Street Presbyterian Church. He held this position for most of the 1840s, the decade in which he came to prominence as a radical abolitionist. In 1843, he brought together the themes of religion and violent resistance in a remarkably radical speech that remains his principal claim to fame. Garnett had helped to organize a national convention of colored citizens in Buffalo, New York. As we mentioned in episode 45, 
This revitalized a tradition that had gotten started at the beginning of the 1830s, but which had petered out by the middle of that decade. On the second day of the convention, Garnett delivered his famous Address to the Slaves of the United States of America, which he proposed for adoption as an official statement of the convention. The title already suggests why the speech is controversial. It was not aimed at slave owners or non-slave-owning white people who might be persuaded to oppose slavery or even free blacks who would have made up the immediate audience at the convention. Instead, the real audience was the presently enslaved. Garnett's message to these people was, to put it simply, stop being enslaved. This speech begins with acknowledgement of how novel it was to address the enslaved, rather than to lament and critique the institution of slavery itself. We have never until this time, he says, sent a word of consolation and advice to you. By doing so, he acknowledges the need for solidarity and recognition of shared interest. Troubling the distinction between free and unfree, he notes, while you have been oppressed, we have also been partakers with you, nor can we be free while you are enslaved. We therefore write to you as being bound with you. Garnett gestures at the sad history of slavery in America, including the disappointment that it was not abolished even after a revolution whose popular cry was liberty or death. He notes that slavery aims to distance people from their humanity and dim their mental capacities, and then moves to his key claim, to such degradation, it is sinful in the extreme for you to make voluntary submission. This was how Garnett had come to understand his Christian faith. Of course, slavery is sinful for the slave owner, but submitting to it is also sinful for the enslaved. You are not certain of heaven, he claims, because you suffer yourselves to remain in a state of slavery, where you cannot obey the commandments of the sovereign of the universe. He also puts the point more abstractly as follows. Your condition does not absolve you from your moral obligation. So, he claims that freeing oneself is a duty, and adding further fuel to the fire, a duty to make use of every means, moral, intellectual, and physical, that seems promising for the success of this effort. The enslaved must act for themselves, because they can plead their cause and thus do the work of emancipation better than any others. Implicitly speaking directly to adult male slaves, he implores them to consider the sufferings of their wives and children. A further source of motivation can be found in the hybrid identity, to which all African Americans can lay claim. Think of the undying glory that hangs around the ancient name of Africa, and forget not that you are native-born American citizens, and as such, you are justly entitled to all the rights that are granted to the freest. Reason enough to demand freedom, and in case freedom is not granted, he unflinchingly states, you had far better all die, die immediately, than live slaves and entail your wretchedness upon your posterity. He points out that the heroes of the American Revolution never had it as hard as slaves, so how much more should slaves be ready to demand liberty or death? Drawing to a close, he uttered a phrase that has become the most famous part of the speech, let your motto be resistance, resistance, resistance. He asked the enslaved to trust in the living God and to remember that you are three millions. It's probably obvious to you that Garnett is building here on the approach to religion and resistance in David Walker's Appeal. But just in case, we can add that in 1848, Garnett published his speech as an appendix to a reprinting of the Appeal, for which he also wrote a brief sketch of the life of David Walker. 
He's said to have been assisted in publishing this volume by none other than John Brown, the white abolitionist who would go on to lead his famous raid on the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry in an effort to spark a general slave insurrection. By publishing this volume, Garnett, like Maria W. Stewart before him, positioned himself philosophically as a Walkerite, developing and advancing aspects of Walker's thought. But of course, scholars love nothing so much as making the straightforward and obvious more complicated. Just as we consider the suggestion that Stewart, contrary to appearances, may have been an advocate for violent resistance, we must note that multiple scholars have suggested that Garnett actually rejects violent resistance in his address. Most recently, James Jasinski has argued that Garnett calls rather for the enslaved to carry out a nonviolent general strike, despite knowing that violent retaliation by their masters would likely greet any such refusal to work. Jasinski claims, Garnett never called upon slaves to arm themselves even in self-defense, let alone encourage slaves to attack white Southerners. He goes so far as to compare Garnett to the greatest icon of nonviolence, Martin Luther King Jr. Given Garnett's reputation, this seems a bit like calling the winner of a hot dog eating contest a champion of vegetarianism. But to be fair to Jasinski and others who hold this interpretation, there is a passage in Garnett's speech that appears to directly repudiate violence and argue for something like a general strike. Sounding a good deal like Stuart, Garnett says, We do not advise you to attempt a revolution with the sword because it would be inexpedient. Your numbers are too small, and moreover the rising spirit of the age and the spirit of the gospel are opposed to war and bloodshed. But from this moment, cease to labor for tyrants who will not remunerate you. Let every slave throughout the land do this, and the days of slavery are numbered. In response to this apparent smoking gun, or rather non-smoking gun, we might first note the context. It comes right after Garnett lists heroes who are role models for slave resistance, each of whom resisted or planned to resist violently. Specifically, he mentions Denmark Vesey and Nat Turner, who we discussed in episode 43, as well as Joseph Sinquet, leader of the revolt on the Amistad, and Madison Washington, who led a revolt on a ship called the Creole. The latter two incidents would have been especially fresh in the memories of his listeners, having taken place just a couple of years prior. Given Garnett's glorification of these heroes, the puzzling passage seems more likely to be an admission that one big violent revolution is unlikely to work in the United States, which wouldn't imply a rejection of violence in more specific cases. This reading fits with a remark in the closing paragraph of the speech, What kind of resistance you had better make, you must decide by the circumstances that surround you and according to the suggestion of expediency. It is also telling that in James McCune Smith's introduction to an 1865 publication of a speech Garnett delivered before the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., the address to the slaves is reproduced in full, but with some revision. Most notably, the passage discouraging revolution with the sword is gone, replaced by, Brethren, arise, arise, strike for your lives and liberties, now is the day and the hour, let every slave throughout the land do this, and the days of slavery are numbered. But let's assume that it is the 1848 version, rather than this later text, that faithfully reproduces what Garnett said at the convention, and move on to the debate that erupted between Douglas and Garnett over the speech. The minutes of the convention tell us that Douglas objected that there was too much physical force in the speech, and that he was for trying the moral means a little longer. So Douglas seems to have understood Garnett 
to endorse the use of violence. On the other hand, Garnett was rather more nuanced in his response to Douglas. He replied, The most the address said was that it advised the slaves to go to their masters and tell them that they wanted liberty and had come to ask for it, and if the master refused it, to tell them, then we shall take it, let the consequence be what it may. Douglas replied that this would obviously lead to insurrection. Thus began a debate that carried on from Wednesday, when Garnett gave the speech, until Saturday, the last day of the convention, when a final vote was taken on whether to adopt the speech as an official statement by the convention. Douglas's side won, but it was only one battle in an ideological war, one that would ultimately go Garnett's way. At the time, Douglas was still a faithful Garrisonian. Garnett, too, had been an early admirer of William Lloyd Garrison. As a teenager in New York City in 1834, he co-founded a literary society called the Garrison Literary and Benevolent Association. Later in May of 1840, he delivered a speech at a meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society and had the honor of being introduced by Garrison himself. That same month, however, a rift among the Garrisonians resulted in the founding of a rival organization which Garnett supported. He quickly got on board with the position that participation in the U.S. political system was a viable way of fighting slavery, breaking with the Garrisonian position that such participation meant being in league with slaveholders. Garnett became a fervent supporter of the Liberty Party, which emerged from this abolitionist split as a third party seeking to challenge the acceptance of slavery by the two major political parties of the time. As we've seen, Douglas too eventually broke with Garrison. Gradually, he came to explore the paths of political participation and violent resistance that Garnett had traveled down much more quickly and earlier. Douglas's greater fame, however, would come to obscure Garnett's early prominence, something we might relate to, among other things, the success of Douglas's narrative and the platform provided by Douglas's newspaper, The North Star. Garnett had made attempts at journalism, but they were quite unsuccessful by comparison. In fact, the debate between Douglas and Garnett played itself out in the pages of the North Star. In 1849, knowing that Garnett was planning a trip to England, Douglas published an editorial criticizing him as an unworthy representative of the abolitionist cause, writing, Mr. Garnett has again and again declared that he had no faith in moral means for the overthrow of American slavery, that his hope for success was in the sword. Garnett's response in a letter Douglas published in his paper does much to clarify how Garnett conceptualized the nature of resistance. You publish that I have no faith in the use of moral means for the extinction of American slavery. I believe with all my heart in such means, and I believe that political power ought to be used for that end, and that when rightly used, it is strictly moral. I also believe that the slave has a moral right to use his physical power to obtain his liberty. My motto is, give me liberty or give me death. Dare you, Frederick Douglass, say otherwise? We've seen how Douglass later endorsed violent resistance in works like the West India Emancipation Speech, and one wonders whether Garnett may have influenced his development. But note that even in that later speech, Douglass speaks of moral and physical resistance as distinct, if equally justified, forms of resistance. Garnett's point in this 1849 letter seems to have been that all justified resistance necessarily counts by virtue of being justified as moral resistance. Though Douglas more or less came around to Garnett's point of view on violent resistance and political participation, he remained opposed to another tendency in Garnett's thought that emerged in the late 1840s, 
greater openness to emigration. In another letter, published in the North Star in 1849, Garnett wrote of his shifting views on Liberia, which had declared its independence from the American Colonization Society and established itself as a republic just two years before. I hesitate not to say that my mind of late has greatly changed in regard to the American colonization scheme. So far as it benefits the land of my fathers, I bid it Godspeed, but so far as it denies the possibility of our elevation here, I oppose it. I would rather see a man free in Liberia than a slave in the United States. The caveat that immigration must not undermine uplift in the United States shows he had not changed his mind as fully as John Russworm did before him. He repeatedly denied calling for all African Americans to leave America, but this did not stop Douglas and others, including former schoolmate George T. Downing, from vigorously opposing him. Garnett arrived in England in August of 1850 and lectured successfully in the British Isles for about two and a half years, after which he did not return to the United States, but took up a position as a Presbyterian missionary in Jamaica. He was joined there by his wife Julia Garnett, born Julia Williams, whom he had first met back at the ill-fated Noyes Academy, and who, like him, had then gone to the Oneida Institute. He once suggested that the only influence upon his address to the slaves outside his own mind was Julia's. In Jamaica, she organized a female industrial school while her husband carried on his ministry. They left to go back to the United States in 1855 because of illness, and Garnett soon took up a pastorship in New York City. This is what he was doing by the time he attended the Emancipation Day celebration where Douglas gave his speech. The two were on better terms by that point. By the late 1850s, however, Garnett once again became fascinated with ideas of emigration. He founded the African Civilization Society. Critics of emigration, of course, pointed out its familiar-sounding acronym, ACS. He became excited about possibilities of emigration to West Africa, particularly Yoruba land, and later also Haiti. Like most leaders of the time, though, he eventually became caught up in the drama of the Civil War. He recruited for the Union Army and created posters with slogans characteristic of his thought, Rather die free men than live as slaves. Rise now and fly to arms. It is a testament to the enduring respect many had for him as an abolitionist that, after the ratification of the 13th Amendment in January of 1865, Garnett was invited to preach before the House of Representatives, becoming the first black person invited to speak to Congress. The introduction to the publication of the speech by James McCune Smith is the most thorough recounting and appreciation of Garnett's life before Crummel's eulogy. Much less attention has been paid by scholars to Garnett's life after 1865, but it is worth noting that, more than many American contemporaries, he devoted himself to opposing slavery in other parts of the world. In 1872, he was elected secretary of the Cuban Anti-Slavery Society and campaigned for emancipation on that island, which would not be secured until 1886, after his death. Yet his last years were also characterized by isolation and lack of influence in comparison to, say, Douglas. As Crummel puts it, sorrow and discouragement fell upon his soul, and at times the wounded spirit sighed for release, and the strong desire arose to escape to some foreign land where, oblivious of the ingratitude and forgetfulness of his people, he might have a few final days of peace and comfort, and at last sink quietly to his grave. Crummel reports him saying, after getting the appointment from President Garfield, as minister to Liberia, 
Would you have me linger here in an old age of neglect and want? No, I go gladly to Africa. Please the Lord, I can only safely cross the ocean, land on the coast of Africa, look around upon its green fields, tread the soil of my ancestors, live if but a few weeks, then I shall be glad to lie down and be buried beneath its sod. Garnett got his wish. Despite his radical efforts to think through black freedom, it is striking that even his work as a promoter of emigration, which helped to put him on the sidelines of black leadership, has been overshadowed in recent scholarship on African-American philosophy. Attention has focused more on another man of the times, Martin Delaney. He was another thinker who interacted with and challenged Douglas, while also challenging scholars with the apparent tensions in his own thought. So let your motto be to keep listening, and join us to hear about Martin Delaney next time here on The History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God all of my troubles when I get